Oh Lord, at the dawn of this new year, we come before you humbly asking that you would grant us grace and understanding into your word. I ask, Father, for the power and unction of your spirit to proclaim your word in a manner which is proper, which is pleasing to you and beneficial to your blood-purchased people. Grant us the grace of your spirit, Lord, who teaches us all truth. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We often hear ourselves or loved ones or casual acquaintances saying, I don't know how he could have done that or I don't know how she could have done that or what on earth was I thinking when I did that or said that. We trick ourselves, we fool ourselves and each other and we find within ourselves things that we don't particularly care to see. I recall when I was a social worker in Michigan working with young convicts, the only word to use, with a young man who had committed a a nonviolent crime, really a senseless crime, a really very stupid crime. He was from basically a middle-class family, you know, had not grown up with dire hardship like some of his fellow dorm mates because it was a halfway house environment. And he graduated the program. It was a six-month program. He graduated it with you know, a few minor infractions, but nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. Within maybe six weeks of his graduation, it was actually called graduation, he had committed a horrifically violent crime for which he will never, ever walk out of prison for. And when we heard about it, the staff, we were utterly stunned. And we said to ourselves, I remember discussing over Stephanie, I said, I would never have thought that he would have been capable of that. Some young men, we would easily have said, well, we saw flashes of that, but this fellow was amiable did pretty much everything we said, came home late a couple of times, and caught a few infractions, but as I said, nothing, nothing, nothing very serious. And he committed a horrible crime. And I remember sitting down with uh, one of the um, chief of staff, for lack of a better term, and we ruminated over this because we weren't particularly close with this young man, but we had forged not a friendship, but a working relationship with him. It was his caseworker. And I said, did you see anything of this in him? I said, I certainly didn't. I had many talks with him. He said, no, I really didn't. I really didn't. I said, I can only think that this was just a momentary flash of something deep, deep inside of him. And I said, boy, he will really regret those three minutes that it took to commit that crime. Three minutes and a life is ruined. But the scriptures tell us where that comes from. Jeremiah says the heart, the human heart, is desperately wicked and deceitful beyond measure. And then it tells us this. The passage continues. Who can know it? Who can know it? If each of us were to look deeply, deeply into our hearts, we would realize that we are capable of the craziest things. And only
only but the grace of God restrains us. Do you understand that the Holy Spirit who resides in you acts as a restraining power against the sinful flesh? Without the power of the Holy Spirit, you have no idea what you would possibly be capable of. Think of some of the things that you have done in your life that you regret, that you're embarrassed of. As a Christian, because we still sin as Christians, and believe it or not, there are levels of sin. There are some sins that are more serious than others. Gossip is horrible. Guess what? Murder is worse. And if you have to take a choice between someone gossiping about you and murdering you, you will pick gossip every single day. Okay? They're all sins, but there were different penalties for sin under the Old Covenant. Were there not? There were. That shows that in God's mind, there are different types of sins and different degrees of sin. Even for the most heinous acts of taking someone's life under the Old Covenant, if a life was taken accidentally, the penalty was different than if it was done with premeditation. All of Western law codes are informed, whether they know it or not, are informed by the Old Covenant. They're all based upon it. Thou shalt not steal. It's pretty much illegal to steal another's property anywhere you go in the world. It's not, generally speaking, considered a virtue. Except amongst thieves. And even they don't like it when people steal their stuff. James here is talking to the church he continually refers to them as beloved brethren, Adelphoi. And he says this, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Not within. He's talking about interpersonal conflict within the church, not intrapersonal, not the fight that we wage inside against our own sinful desires, but the wars that we wage between ourselves. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Now, members here can mean a couple of things. It can mean simply body parts. Okay? But I think in this context, it is talking about the greater body, the larger body. Because Paul uses that analogy as well, that the church is the body of Christ. And then Paul uses in, in Corinthians that Paraphrase here, some folks are eyes, some feet are fingers, some people are arms, but guess what? Every part needs, each, each needs the other part, and none of them are better than others. They simply have different functions. And James, the Lord's half-brother, is saying that these wars, these squabbles that are endemic to every church, irrespective of size, irrespective of time, irrespective of denomination... Okay, This was written 2,000 years ago. That means that church conflict is nothing new. Okay? You go back to the book of Exodus. There was problems there in the, old, in the old church, in the old covenant church. People grumbled against Moses. I mean, think about it. They're enslaved to Egypt, to Pharaoh, who's cruel. Moses, God, through Moses as his human agent, brings them out of slavery does all those plagues against Egypt, and then when Moses, God, leads him, but Moses is God's human agent by which this happens, they start to complain against him. Hey, where's the food? This isn't good food. We're tired of this manna. You know, have, we had it pretty good back in Egypt. Let's go back. 
He goes up to the mountain. We, we don't, he's been up there for a while. Maybe he's gone. Let's make ourselves a golden calf. And they complained against Moses so often in so many ways that you may recall that the Lord told Moses, you know what, and again, this is a paraphrase, I'm going to wipe them out. I've had it with them. I am done with them. I'll wipe them out, except you, and I will raise up a new people for you to lead. Now, most of us, if we were in Moses' position, would be extremely tempted by that offer. Moses, on the other hand, is a type of Christ. He intercedes for the people and says, far be it for that to happen, Lord. And what is, do you remember what Moses' plea was? Not for the people. Not on the basis of the people. And certainly not for his own gain, because he didn't gain anything by this. He said, for your great name, Lord. Because what will the Egyptians say? What will the world say? Oh, he brought them out into the desert just to destroy them. So Moses interceded on behalf of the Israelites on the basis of what we would call the third commandment. Hallowed be thy name. For God's great glory, his great name. And ironically, in our confession of sin, we ask God to let us walk in his ways to the glory of his name. Do you realize that wherever you go, you carry the name of Christian. And when you behave like a non-Christian, Listen to me very carefully. Your fellow Christians notice it. And your fellow citizens who are non-Christians, they notice it as well. And secretly, they disparage the name of God because of our conduct. That's what it really means to violate the third commandment. It's not simply using the Lord's name as a cuss word. It's carrying his name lightly. The word honor in Hebrew means to give weight to. To give weight to. So when we are to honor God's name, we give it weight. We don't carry it lightly. We tell our children, hey, don't take this lightly. Don't take this correction lightly. It's ironic that we don't ever say, hey, take this heavily. We should. You should take the admonitions of the Lord very heavily because his name is worthy of honor because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And James is telling us that all of this comes from our desires for pleasure. In the Gospels, do you see Jesus chasing pleasure anytime? Let me ask you this. When you read the Gospels, I should ask you, do you read the Gospels? But when you hear the Gospels read from from the pulpit, do you see Jesus, literally, honestly, do you see him having a good time at any time during his three years of ministry. Every now and again you do. I'm sure he was amused at Zacchaeus. But generally speaking, we see a lot of conflict. We see him weighed down because the people around him are seeking after the wrong things. Because of what Isaiah prophesied. They didn't believe him. And in that gospel passage that we read today, the scriptures tell us that even though Jesus had done all of these great wonders and signs, the people still didn't believe him. Some did. But then what does it say? That even some of the rulers, they believed on him, but they were what? They were afraid. They were afraid of the opinion of their fellow Pharisees and Sadducees. They valued the opinion of men more than the opinion of God. And how many of us are guilty of that crime? worrying more about our public reputation 
rather than our private devotion to God. All of us, to a lesser or greater degree. And James continues, you lust, strong word, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Hmm. Now this is hyper, hyperbolic language. We can pretty much assume that actual murder was not necessarily occurring in these congregations. I, I think we can safely say that coveting was. I heard an interesting item on, uh, it wasn't actually a sermon I heard this week, but a talk show, I guess, a Christian talk show. It says, the mark of a mature Christian, and this really struck me, one of the marks of a mature Christian was someone who, when another Christian was succeeding, either in the spiritual or financial realm, that the first Christian was joyous for the success of the other Christian. But too many of us, when we see another Christian succeeding, we think, where's my slice of the pie? Why don't I have that? What makes him better? Why has God blessed her? Instead of being joyous for our brothers and sisters, we fulfill what James is talking about here. We lust after what they have. We covet. We desire the pleasure that we think that they're getting from it instead of being joyous for them. We ask in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you think that any of the saints in heaven are jealous of each other? Do you think that any of the saints in heaven covet or gossip about each other? No, they do not. They're too enamored with the sight of God. And that's what has to occur in our lives. We have to continually look, not within ourselves like the Eastern religions teach us, but look outward to Christ and become enamored of who He is. And when that occurs, then we will be happy when other Christians succeed. We will be happy when other Christians are blessed spiritually or financially. That does not mean that we don't feel a pain of our own loss. It doesn't say that. You can simultaneously, listen, you can simultaneously feel joy for another while experiencing deep sadness because of your own predicament, plight, or providence of God, which is really what it is. You can do both. If you're having troubles in one area and another Christian is having success, you can be joyous for them and at the same time look up at the sky at night and say, you know, I'd like some of that. You can do both. But if you don't do the first, if you're not joyous for another Christian, then what does that say about the gospel? What it really says is it really hasn't penetrated us too deep. We're to be like sponges. If you drop a sponge into water, does it stay dry? I don't think it's physically possible for it to stay dry. It absorbs the water. The gospel is likened to water. It has to, we have to be sponges of the gospel. It has to, we have to absorb it just naturally. But we fight against it. And we war against it because of the remnants of sin that remain in us. And then in verse 3, 
You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. This is the cause of some reasons why God says, no, I always tell people God always answers your prayers. Always. He says yes. He says no, which is the definitive answer. And he says maybe slash wait. No is an answer, believe it or not. That's a definitive answer. Dad, can I borrow the car? No. It's an answer. Maybe it's not a very pleasant one. Mom, can I stay up? No. Maybe not a very fun answer, but it's very definitive. Listen, sometimes God says no. And if God says no to you, he knows better than you what you need. That's a painful lesson to learn. But each of us, I dare say, has asked God for X, Y, or Z and received A, B, or C. And we are perplexed and wondered. And then later on down the road, we realize, ooh, I really am glad he said no on that one. Because if I had taken that road, this and that would have happened. But that's not really what's going on here. The implication is that we're not getting the yes because we ask wrongly that we may use it for our pleasures. You see, the gifts that God gives us, whether they be financial, whether they be mental, emotional, spiritual, any gift that God gives us is not to be used for our own selfish purposes. It is to be used for the benefit, A, first, the body of Christ. Then B, the salvation of the world. You and I are third in line. If God gives you something, it is to be used for the benefit of the body. And so many Christian churches, irrespective of denomination, irrespective of time, irrespective of geography, irrespective of size of the congregation, there are too many people not using their gifts for the benefit of the body. Oh, he'll do it. Somebody else will do it. You know what? That's how 10% of the people in a church burn out. They flame out. Because the other 90% say, they'll do it. They always do. And you know what? After 30 or 40 years, those people are tired. And it's time for other people to stand up to the plate and take their swings, to use a modern metaphor. If you're gifted, and listen, every single one of you in this room And even those who aren't here, who are in our roles, if they're true Christians, have been given either a gift or a spiritual gift set. It's a limited list. And one of my functions as a pastor is to help people figure out what their gifts are. And then to help them find a way to use it for the benefit of A, the church, B, the world. And you know what? When you live to serve other persons... Something funny happens. A couple of funny things happen. Well, ironic things. One, God starts to use you more. And ironically, you become more joyous. You see, we have it backwards. We think that if we get something and we hoard it and keep it to ourselves and lock it away, that we're going to be happy. We find that if we get something and we share it, that our joy increases. There's nothing very attractive. And think about it. It's childlike behavior. When a child receives something and they just grab it and run to their rooms and say, you're not going to touch this. This is mine. This is mine. There's nothing wrong with it if it's a toy that the person who receives it uses it first. 
And there's nothing wrong with uh, an older sister not wanting the younger brother to destroy their brand new doll or something. There's nothing wrong with that. But sharing is the sign of adult behavior. Hoarding is the sign of child behavior, childish behavior. And remember, we're to receive the faith with child-like behavior, not child-ish behavior. There are a lot of Christians who remain child-ish for the vast majority of their lives. And they shrivel up inside. They have no joy inside. Do you want, do you want the joy of the Lord, which is your strength? Then start to serve other people. Start to take these words that James is giving us to heart. And then he goes, he starts to go off. James is not a pleasant book to read. It's five chapters of just tongue lashing. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This language of adulterer and adulteress is old covenant language. God never calls unbelievers adulterers and adulteresses. Ever. That term is only used for his special covenant people because they only are in covenant with him. They are the only ones who can, technically speaking, spiritually cheat on him. Okay? All human beings are created in the image of God. Even the worst that you see out there. They're all created in the image of God. But God's covenant people have a special relationship with him because of the blood of Christ. We are the only ones who can cheat on him because we have that marital relationship. We are members of the bride of Christ. This is Old Testament language. You find it in the book of Hosea. You find it through... This is, as I've said, James, James reads and speaks like an old covenant prophet. So let me ask you this. How faithful have you been in 2011 to the Lord your God who has given you and I, given me so much. He has given us a lot. Spiritually, I'm talking about. Never mind financially. Even those of us who struggled last year financially. We still have a lot more than a lot of people. I was just visiting with someone uh, yesterday and the TV was on in the background. And there was some documentary uh, showing persons, no, people, giant, hundreds of people in another part of the world. And I thought, man, here I am visiting. You know, the person's not feeling well, but the heat's on, the lights are on, there's Christmas gifts around. They've offered me food, which I've politely refused. And here are these people, literally, scrounging for food. You realize the great things that God has given us. And do you realize that when we complain that we act like the Old Testament Israelites? I want to go back to Egypt. Don't you remember in Egypt we had watermelons, we had leeks, we had onions. They forgot about the whip. They forgot about the slave master. We're tired of this quail. Quail is tasty. We're tired of this quail. So God says, you're tired of quail? I'll give you quail. I'll give you so much quail that you won't be able to gather it up and it will die and stink. I'll show you. God has given us so much. Were we faithful to him in 2011? I titled the sermon 2012. 
This year, we need to move forward as a church. We need to push towards real, deep spiritual communion with God and love towards and with each other. Has to occur. Long time in coming. Has to occur. If we want to receive God's blessing. And we shouldn't do it just to receive God's blessing. We should do it because it's the right thing to do. Doing the right thing isn't always fun. It is hardly ever popular. But it's always the right thing to do. But it's scary. And listen, those of you who aren't elders or deacons, you need to pray for these men who who serve you, who represent you, because their positions aren't always easy. And I hope you pray for me because my position isn't easy. I was talking to somebody once and um, just recently and they said, um, well, you know, that person's you know, kind of needy. It was a young person saying, yeah, I have to you know, talk to this person. And then he said, I guess you would know about that, wouldn't you? I said, well, yeah, that's, that's part of life. You know, you look after people who are weaker than you. That, that's part of growing up. That's part of assuming your Christian responsibility. That's part of becoming a man. This particular chap was a young man. Listen, if we want to be friends with the world, we're going to be an enemies of God. It's just as simple. That's what the text says. Do you want to be an enemy of God? Anybody want to stand up and come forward for that one? That's a silly move. That's crazy. Think in the geopolitical realm. That's like bombing the United States. It's never a good idea for another country to do that. It always turns out bad for them. Always. Why? Well... Because we have the biggest military. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. We always win. The only time we lose is when we feel bad for the other guy. Listen, God never feels bad for his enemies. He loves his people. He never feels bad for his enemies. That's why he's created a place called hell. He created it. It's real. He doesn't feel bad for his enemies. He doesn't weep for them. We're called friends of God. Abraham is called the friend of God. We believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're the friends of God. We need to act like that, which means we cannot be friends with the world, which means we cannot do things the way the world would have us to do them. Too many churches are doing this. Capitulating to the world, saying, hey, we're just like you, we're just like you. When in reality we should say, no, we're very, very different, actually. We're very different. In verse 5, it says, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. The Spirit lives in you. And the Spirit wants to have communion with you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And the Scripture ends by saying, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Let me close with this. Are you proud? Are you proud? Do you think that you're better than other persons? If so, then God will most certainly resist you. He will look down upon you, but he gives grace to the humble. Let us all strive this year to be humble, to walk with humility before the Lord our God, and to seek the betterment of our fellow Christians. And if we do so, we will look back on to, in, at, in 2013 and say, wow, 
that was a joyful and productive year. May God give us the grace to do so. Would you pray with me? Lord our God, we ask that you would grant us the grace to obey your word and to seek you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' precious name, amen.